Hi, everybody, and welcome to the European VC Podcast. As usual, I am David, joined by my co-founder, Andreas. Today, we have Sam Endicott with us. Sam is a partner at First Minute, a 400 million USD seed stage venture fund based in London and Berlin to back founders across Europe, but also opportunistically in the US and the rest of the world. The fund has invested across all sectors. As such, it's a generalist VC fund, but typically focused in SaaS, deep tech, developer tools, and fintech. First Minute is also backed by over 130, that's 130, unicorn founders in addition to current and former CEOs of global corporates. First Minute are now investing out of Fund 3 with a total of 100 million USD in AUM and an established portfolio of over 130 companies. Notable investments include A-Team, Storyblock, Robocorp, Engflow, Wave, Clang, Clockwork Labs, Ramp, Element, and Generation Home. The portfolio has raised follow-on financing rounds from Embracer Softbank's a long list, Sequoia, Anderson Horowitz, Tomico Index, Benchmark, Kotu, SoftBank, Tiger, General Catalyst, North Zone, Mubadala Capital, NFX, Bulletin D1, Felicis, Bain Capital, and Tencent. And I had to take a breather in the middle of that. At first minute, Sam is focused on SaaS developer tools, AI, ML, and FinTech, and has led investments into a number of the fund's high-performing companies, such as Storyblock and a number of recent deals in this space of AIML, which are not yet announced, but we'll talk a bit about the space. If you're listening in, love our show, drop us a review, follow the pod, and subscribe at eu.vc. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. An alliance. This, this is a union of values, values. United and determined. We can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings. Let's start acting, 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 acting. This show is not investment advice and the hosts of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured. After David rattling all that off, let's get into your story on how you got into venture. Yeah, absolutely. So my journey into venture, I suppose was a little bit unusual. So I I went to study at the London School of Economics in London. And my plan was actually to go into the foreign office. So I wanted to be a diplomat when I went to university at 18. And I, whilst there, I fell into the trap that I think many people do, especially when they go to university in London, I ended up going into investment banking at Goldman Sachs, which was actually just down the road from my university campus. So it was about a, a two-minute walk. You could almost see it from the from the library. At Goldman, I, I ended up working in the investment banking team in the financial institutions group. And that meant deep diving into the world of banks, insurance uh, companies, credit management companies, payment companies, and and eventually fintech as well. It was quite an interesting period because it was 2016 to 2018. And that was the time when the Revoluts and the Monzos and the N26s were popping up. And I was covering UK banks and I could kind of see the writing on the wall that was coming. And actually a couple of colleagues in my group actually ended up leaving and going and working at these digital banks. So that was kind of my first foray into the technology world. I really enjoyed that. I ended up leaving Goldman and actually had 
two options on the table. One was to to go and work at WeWork, and and the other was to join First Minute and and work for for, for Brent Hoberman's new fund. And Brent built uh, LastMinute.com back in the late '90s and and took that business public in 2005. And I thought that was a a really incredible opportunity and go to go and learn from from someone who'd who'd scaled such a a, a sort of large unicorn company in a very interesting space and had an amazing network and um his pitch for the fund was i wanted to build a, a venture fund that uh, i would have raised money from when i was starting lastminute.com and that was with 30 unicorn founders at the time and now we're at 130 so that was my my story of getting into venture and i just want to say brent was if i remember correctly he was actually the one that recommended we we brought sam on the pod so uh, a shout <laughs> out a shout out to him from our side as well thank you for the for the introduction brent sam normally we ask people to share a pivotal moment in their life at this stage but i actually want to want to detour a bit and ask you about you said you wanted to be a diplomat. That's not very common, right? I think many many young kids might not even really know what a diplomat does, to be honest. So I'd, lo- I'd love to ask you, you know, why, why, why was that? And does that relate in any way to what you do today as a VC? Yeah, a little bit. So so I was always really into history and, and politics. And I used to, for fun, I used to read biographies of, you know, famous politicians and military leaders and things like that. So I was really into history. And then as I sort of went through my teenage years, I got more into modern history and modern international relations. So that was just a big personal interest of mine. And, and actually, I studied political science at, at university as well. So so that was that was one reason. The second reason was just coming from a pretty international background. So so my mom grew up all over the Middle East and, um, and, and Europe. So I'd always been quite quite exposed to that kind of international background so I think that was ingrained for me from from quite an early age in terms of like how it relates to venture capital I was thinking about this a little bit it it does in in a sense because especially in in, uh, somewhere like first minute I mean I'm constantly meeting entrepreneurs from different parts of Europe as you mentioned in the intro at the beginning um, other parts of the world you know we've been doing investments in emerging markets we've We've made investments in South Africa, in Egypt, yeah. in in Kenya, and Nigeria, uh, the US, and and also Pakistan. So it's been it's been pretty global in that sense. The other point to mention is just when we're backing companies, these entrepreneurs are thinking global from day one. We don't tend to back sort of national champions. So it's pretty exciting in that sense. So so you're always meeting different different personalities, people from different cultures people from different up, upbringings and people who want to take their products and sell them to all different types of people. So it is a bit like that. You said that you like, you like to read, uh, you know, books from famous politicians or historical figures or whatnot. Is, the, is there one that you have like, as I, w- I won't say as a role model, but one that you kind of come back to in your thinking oftentimes that you would uh, advise any of our listeners to, to learn a bit more about? Yeah, actually, there was um, uh, there was a, a, a few books that William Hague, who he used to be the the leader of um, the Conservative Policy uh, Con- Conservative Party, and he wrote two very good books. One was on uh, William Pitt the Younger, and the other was on William Wilberforce. So those are two books I'd highly recommend reading. Uh, pretty interesting periods of, of British history. Sam, let's get into the take a stand section. Take a star. 
Sam, I would love to ask you to comment on the following quote by Daniel Kyber-Knorr from Speed Invest. But if you need luck to become successful, then you might rather restart. Yeah, so I I disagree with that that comment because I think um, I think everyone needs a little bit of luck. And, and I, I, I completely understand the intention behind the statement, but I think everyone needs a little bit of luck, but you just need to put the right processes around what you do every day so that when you need that luck, it finds you rather than you sort of relying on it, if that makes sense. So I think luck is important, but uh, you, you still got to have that sort of very disciplined, you know, daily grind as an entrepreneur and as an investor if you want to succeed. So Sam, to, to my knowledge, you've been uh, traditionally focused on fintech enterprise SaaS and also some work in emerging markets that you kind of hinted to it, but it would be, I don't know, almost silly of us to not talk about DevTools AI, AI these days, especially because it's something you're looking into and everyone's actually everyone's thinking about it at least. And by the way, before we deep dive into this, there's a really cool article that you guys put out at first minute about how you think of, of the space. I'd really advise everyone to, to check that out. We'll add the, the link to the notes. But I'd love to ask you about these interests of yours and how they converge. And actually, specifically, you know, where do you personally see the most potential for investments in the Gen AI space, right, that everyone's talking about? But I, I think very few actually actually have strong frameworks of thinking towards that space these days. So the space has got incredibly busy over the last 12 to 18 months. And, and you know, we're seeing a lot of pitches and we've, we've invested pretty heavily in the space, um, both at the application layer, uh, but then also uh, we have an investment at the foundational model layer. And then we've also backed a number of infrastructure companies and then also a number of vertical SaaS companies. So we're invested across the stack, um, which is a seed VC is, is pretty important uh, to build a sort of diversified portfolio uh, in that sense. And not to have uh, too concentrated a position in a space which is moving in, in incredibly quickly and changing all the time. But it's also incredibly important to have exposure in that space. So I think a couple of things to mention on why, why we're so excited. I think if you kind of look at the Western world's productivity over the last 30 years, 30, 40 years, it's just been a consistent decline with AI and, and generative AI, but also AI more broadly it's probably a, a chance for that trend to reverse itself. And I think that's, that's an incredibly exciting prospect, both for uh, knowledge workers and developers and corporates, and enterprises, et cetera, so small businesses. So that's why it's such an exciting trend. In terms of where we're getting excited at the moment or where we're spending a lot of our time and trying to figure out how we can capture the most value in the space um, without you know, 20 competitors sort of coming and building similar products. It's probably being very specific in terms of the verticals that we we look at. So one of the problems with Genesis AI at the moment is that a lot of companies are pitching co-pilot for X. The issue with that is um, a lot of the spaces they're going after are dominated by big cloud incumbents who are also incredibly focused on AI and can roll out those co-pilots pretty quickly and are doing so. And it's very difficult to compete with their level of distribution. So how we're thinking about it is saying, 
where are the areas, where are the verticals, where are the industries, where are the subsectors where there aren't cloud incumbents? Maybe those workflows are still dominated by pen and paper or spreadsheets or um, legacy uh, software that runs on premise. Let's look at those categories and the what the what the AI uh, native products can do is they can act as a catalyst for those parts for those industries to make the shift from those from that legacy software or from uh, spreadsheets to a cloud-based products. That's where you can build defensibility and 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 find value also as an investor. So vertical SaaS in less digitally transformed industries and sectors is where we're spending time right now. And then the second piece is actually uh, consumer software, consumer internet. So I think consumer internet has taken a bit of a backseat to uh, B2B software over the last few years, both in terms of sort of venture funding and, um, and venture in- interest. And that makes a lot of sense because, you know, there are huge companies in that space. It, it became incredibly saturated. Customer acquisition became, has become very, very expensive. It takes a lot of capital to scale those businesses, et cetera. And there hasn't really been a major platform shift to open up a, a new wave of companies in, in consumer internet. You know, we had iPhone moment and crypto kind of crypto was a moment where a lot of consumer companies were built and, and, and that was exciting. People talked about VR and AR and, um, and that potentially being a platform shift where you could build uh, new consumer applications and generative AI. Uh, feels like a potential platform shift where where you can build new consumer internet applications. So, you know, we're seeing sort of AI therapists, AI lawyers, um, uh, AI personal trainers, these types of things. So there could be a sort of renaissance in in consumer internet. Want to go back to not B two B necessarily, but rather say it goes for both of them, right? Because you said you're looking for for the spaces where there's been less digital transformation already, and for that reason, you know there will be more opportunity for, for a completely new player because the incumbents, of course, have less ease to, to adapt. Am I right in saying that that this also does encompass the, the models we're imagining an AI version of a CRM, as an example, would be a complete change of how HubSpot would work, right? They might be natively in the cloud, but everything they've built would kind of go to shits if if they had to 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 change the UI or the experience of the user to be seen. That's really yeah, that's really interesting. So in terms of the sort of like the lead, the less digitally transformed industry, so I'm thinking things like um, construction, insurance, these types of industries, maybe industrial engineering, you know, like those types of areas. And so that that's kind of where we're quite interested in. We've got a couple of computer vision startups applied to industry and logistics and things like that. So that's, we're, we're looking very, very closely at those types of spaces. Now, when it comes to your point around sort of HubSpot and it's sort of an AI native CRM, I think you touched on a really good point. I don't think it's about architecture and revamping, you know, the back end and, 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 and the way the product is, is built in that sense. It's not about like back end infrastructure. I think you hit on the point, which is, um, uh, a complete novel way of consuming software. So um, what does the CRM of the future look like? How do I like interact with the CRM of the future? Do I you know, connect with Google, log in, see a list of my contacts and things like that? 
or is my CRM sort of like a browser widget just sort of sits in the background and then surfaces insights to me and allows me to um, follow a workflow based on like how I'm interacting um, on, you know, my, my phone calls and my emails and all these types of things. Like, yes, I, so I think this is, this is a great point around new UIs. And I think that's an area that's actually really exciting because if, especially if you're a seed investor, because, you know, when you see people pitching in a category, like saying, Hey, I'm going to build like sales automation software. And you see the same pitch nine times in two weeks, but then you get an entrepreneur who comes in and says, you will have heard this pitch 10 times, but I'm doing it differently because of X, Y, and Z. And if it's so different that you haven't seen it before, and you're so wowed by the founder's level of conviction, and you think they have the ability to execute on it, and it's just something something that other people haven't figured out, then that's when you lean in. So for us, it's kind of, when we say we have a thesis on the space, it's not really, hey, we're looking to back X. It's more, we have a framework which helps us avoid making mistakes, but we always keep ourselves open to the possibility of being led down a different path by an awesome entrepreneur. And on that, on, okay, so sorry, sorry for making a, a, a slightly provocative pivot there. So, because <laughs> now I'm going to ask you, Speaking of being let down a path, I need to ask you to talk a bit about Mistral and 105 million euro <laughs> seed round. Uh, you know, and obviously for the context to everyone here, this is one of the deals that people are using to say something's up in AI, um, in generative AI, something's up with the size of the rounds. And you've even, I don't know if it's you personally, Sam, but we've even had <laughs> individuals with a similar profile as yours, being young and new to the industry, being commented on in, all, in the All In podcast saying, these guys don't know what they're doing. They're, they're, they're putting millions and millions into seed rounds where the majority of the capital will go right into just installed hardware uh, or buying buying chips, really. And you might as well have bought, bought a stake in NVIDIA then. That type of shit have been spoken a lot about in the in the uh, in the industry, um, and and by by the very notorious four that I just mentioned. I'd love to ask you to comment on that, um, both when you heard from me now, but also what you've been thinking over the last two months. Yeah, totally. So I think um, I think Mr. Charles is a very interesting company for a couple of reasons. One, um, Europe needs an alternative to uh, OpenAI because um, otherwise the mistakes of the past are just going to repeat themselves in Europe, which is that the US has the monopoly on uh, on big tech. So I think um, it's very, very important that Europe has a potential major winner in um, in the artificial intelligence space. That's number one. So I think it's really good for the ecosystem that someone like Mistral can raise a lot of money, hire incredible talent, and be a, a sort of standard bearer for, for the AI community in Europe as an alternative to, uh, to open AI. So I think that's, that's important. Uh, the second point is uh, Mistral's open source approach. And I think, again, that's um, a very European thing. I think uh, open source has a lot of its roots in Europe. And I think when you think about the Facebooks and the Googles and the, and the Amazons, you know, these big tech companies, they're, they're, they're closed ecosystems. And I think it's great that Europe has the potential to have a, a major open source player in the AI space. Um, so I think that's great. The third point is... This space is so early and, and I think it's still to be determined how 
companies like Mr. Al and, and OpenAI actually go and monetize and, um, and build their businesses, uh, you know, whether they become the Amazons of this world, the AWSs of this world, and, and just become sort of the, the plumbing and, and the sort of like hosting ecosystems is one path. But uh, with Mr. Al's open source approach, I think they've got a lot of flexibility in, in how they can build out a commercial business. But I think it's good news for the ecosystem and um, and we should be rooting for, for more of these types of companies, uh, especially in the AI space. You addressed many of the things there, but you, di- you didn't address the, when you do a 105 million euro funding round for at the seed stage, are you buying are you buying buying chips with that or or can you talk a bit about the mix there because I think it, it it's something that's been spoken so much about but I haven't heard someone like you who's close to the deal actually touch on yeah I think with all the um, uh, the companies at the at the foundational model layer you know a lot of the resources will be going to um, to compute and training uh, models and 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 the infrastructure side of things. Um, so that that that's always going to be a core component of uh, companies who who are touching the infrastructure side or the foundational model there, um, and you know I think you'll see that with with some of the other big raises like Poolside in the US, which is going after uh, code creation and things like that. So so that's that's an important part of it. Um, so anyone building these these large language models um, will will need to get a significant amount of resources to that. Yeah. Could I ask you on the open source part then, because this is definitely, I 100% agree that this is one of the very exciting parts about Mistral and, and and some of the new players coming up because we are seeing OpenAI not being that open anymore. The other major models are coming from the leaders of the of the centralized web. So I, I'd be super curious to to hear your thinking around that and, and also especially because, yes, we have Mistral and we have a great open source community in Europe. But we also have a very, very tight regulation on anything that has to do with, with, with consumer data. And you can't do much with AI if you can't be allowed to use data. And so, on. so I'd be curious to hear how you think about, you know, are, are we in a good regulatory framework right now? And are we headed in that direction? Do you think so in Europe? I think it's in flux, right? I think um, I think the rules are kind of being written uh, and the standards are being uh, discussed at the moment. So I think it's... I think it's too early to tell. What's really good to see is that the UK is actually uh, becoming a leader in that debate and is really focused on it. So I think that's been a, a really positive development, just being you know a UK citizen living living in London to see yeah. to see the UK taking a, a leading role in that debate. I think that's that's um, point number one. But point number two is that I think you know we can we can go down many different paths still. So I think it's too early to tell. But uh, regulation frameworks are super, super important. And um, I think there needs to be a massive amount of focus on that. We, uh, in terms of like the, the, the actual open source piece, I think we're big believers in open source. We really like open source software here at First Minute. And I've, I've invested in quite a lot of open source companies. And there's a philosophical uh, reason for that. But I think there's also a commercial reason for that, which is, uh, big enterprises like using open source software because they can, for a couple of reasons, like one, they can go and audit the code and they can see what they're actually running um, and 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 how the, the software is operating. That's point number one, which in the AI space, when we talk about control and of data um, is going to be increasingly important and well, is, is incredibly important to, uh, to enterprises. Um, and secondly, they want to run things on their own infrastructure. 
and open source projects make that super easy for them to do. So yes, regulation is important. It's great to see Europe taking a lead on it. It's still early days. And um, I think open source plays into that in a really important way because it's both from a very practical point of view, but also from a philosophical point of view. I'm going to ask a completely different question. And uh, it's because in the in the article that, that you've put out, you, you stated something that was quite interesting to me. And, and let me just give you the backdrop of it. I was at an LP forum connected to, to, to the... Um, the tech barbecue event here in the Nordics last week, and and there, when moderating a, a panel, I asked I asked a group of LPs there. I guess we had fifty or sixty or so, and I asked them how many of you are are actively using AI in your in in your day to day, and and I almost want to ask you how many do you think raised their hand, and these were LPs like family offices, uh, uh, institutional investors, so on. I say uh, one in three, one in four. Yeah, I was I was blown away because that number was three in total out of this wow. 60, okay. 70-ish people, right? I was blown away seeing that. Obviously, many of them are using tools that have AI in the background, but the fact that they don't think about it themselves and how to apply it and so on was really startling to me. And, but then I'm connecting this to your your piece, because there you're saying that that you did a did a survey amongst your uh, your, your portfolio companies, and and 84 percent of the responders said they were using generative AI tools internally for their work, and 75 percent were using or thinking about using it in their actual products or outward facing operations. Obviously, there's probably an age chasm between the two groups here. I'd love to ask you, Sam, to talk a bit about how you see the adoption of AI across generations, because I'm definitely seeing, you know, I, the other day I saw a young kid talking to his, 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 his friend, and then she asked him, are, you know, what, wh- why are you writing on your phone? And I was like, that's interesting. And then he said, well, my dad, my, 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 my dad has blocked access to Siri because otherwise I'm not writing. <laughs> Because I'm, I'm not, I'm not. He was in the process of learning how to write. So, so, I, and that just blew my mind. The fact that 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 a friend would ask, "What, what the hell are you doing with your fingers on your phone?" <laughs> um, speaks so, so, so loudly about how the next generation is acting completely differently when using tech than ours, and we are from 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 our seniors. So, Zam, I'll, I'll let you take the floor and talk a bit about AI adoption across age groups. Yeah, totally. So, you know, what's been really interesting this year is how, um, so usually when you're a seed investor, you're thinking about how the world will look like in 15 years time. So, you know, 10 to 15 years time, because the companies you back take 10 to 15 years to to go public and mature. Now, what's been fascinating in the generative AI space is um, the number of new businesses being created at the seed stage and the number of publicly listed businesses on the on the NASDAQ, who are, who are talking about generative AI and actively rolling out generative AI features, right? And being rewarded for that, you know, by investors and, and their stock prices rising on the back of their announcements um, when, they, when they talk about how they're using AI and, and generative AI specifically. So I think that's an important thing to actually mention. I think, I think that's, um, that's been a, a little bit confusing and it's like a, a slightly different thing to experience in 2023. Am I right in saying that that you're kind of using that to argue that you might see seed stage startups move very rapidly 
up towards a very largely scaled? Yeah, I think what I'm saying is that um, you do see that, that the companies are, uh, are, are generating revenue and creating value a lot quicker now than they did maybe, you know, to, it's, it's, um, you can grow incredibly quickly. You can get a you can get a product to market incredibly quickly. You can hire people incredibly quickly. Yeah. Uh, it's it's never been easier to get distribution. All these types of things. Like um, so, I think that is an important point. But the second point is just I think it's on everyone's radar. It's permeating you know all sectors of the economy, all stages of companies, and it's touching every single sector. So I think that that's really the point I'm trying to make. And then in terms of sort of our portfolio survey. The reason I think the numbers are so high is um, uh, comes down to two things. One, yes, um, our companies are early adopters. And then two, um, our companies have big engineering teams. And the two strongest use cases for generative AI in production right now, I think a code um, is software creation or, um, you know, basically GitHub Copilot, um, which is the dominant player in that space, and then sales and marketing. So content generation, right? So code creation and content generation. So that touches both knowledge workers and then also developers. So that's, I think, why the numbers are so high. But the important thing in that survey to call out is that people had a lot of sort of difficulties with um, implementing uh, generative AI. People were talking about how the latency was, um, uh, was poor. Uh, the costs were extremely high. It was very difficult to uh, monitor things. So there's, there's a lot of problems that, that still need to be solved, which people were, were calling out. So I think um, the way we're kind of, we see generative AI is that, and we invest in a lot of companies, so we've got a bit of a front row seat into how people are using things in production is we're incredibly bullish long-term, but in the short term, there'll be uh, blocks in the road, you know? Um, because of some of the difficulties of things getting set up. And then also people not knowing what they want to automate and what use cases they want to um, apply this software to. And not everything is solved by generative AI. Very specific things are solved by generative AI. So if you try and throw generative AI at a problem that shouldn't be solved by generative AI, people are going to get disappointed that they're, they're not going to trust the software and things like that. So you, I think lots of bumps in the road. But long term, we're extremely bullish. I just have one final question before we can move on. I have to ask you within the B2B space, do you see the opportunity for startups being bigger in selling to enterprise or selling to, to, to SMEs? Or is it, is, it, is it the same? The appetite is both places. It's just a matter of the model and, and the product that they're, they're developing. I, I'm asking because, first of all, enterprise, no, let's start the other place, right? At SME level? There's so much to be harvested just by adding more hands because oftentimes it's the lack of uh, uh, higher margins and, and, and thus workforce productivity that limits the growth of, of an SME, right? And they, they, they can't just throw, they simply just do not have enough smart people to throw at a problem or, or at growing or whatever, right? And for that reason, whether I get 100% right results or this AI that is going to tell me who are the most prioritized my lead list as a salesperson, as an example. You know, if I were a big enterprise with a bunch of people employed, I would probably have a pretty good process to make sure that we hit the right leads. But any small SME, you know, they, they're, they're, you know, 
Yeah. 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 This is really interesting. So I, I've, um, I've invested in quite a few companies in the no code, uh, low code space. And one of the things that always got me excited by the no code and low code space was the, this idea that a, a billion dollar business could be built with, uh, with an extremely small team, maybe one person, maybe one or two people, maybe just a founding team could build a billion dollar company um, without ever having to hire um, a team of engineers and a team of sales and marketing professionals and things like that. And I don't think it's happened yet. And I don't think the no code, low code space is, has fulfilled that that promise. I think there's been a lot of skepticism about, you know, that it's there are great platforms and great tools that have built been built in that space, but um, they're still quite hard to use actually. And a lot of people start building their businesses on that, and then when they get to a certain scale, they roll off and bring things in house. Anyway, so I always thought about that. In, in that context. Now, when it comes to AI and generative AI, the same story can be created. It's like, um, could I go and build a business just myself or with one or two people and, and scale it to a billion dollars using AI tooling and generative AI tooling? It's perfectly possible to make a case for that. You know, we've invested in a company which is in stealth right now, which is um, an application builder where the interface is natural language. Um, so you don't need to be a, a developer or an engineer to, to to build a fully blown application. That's for internal tooling and external. And similar tools uh, have been built for, for all the other, you know, knowledge work tasks that you, you mentioned in the beginning. So yes, I think there is an absolutely huge amount of value to be captured from the SME side of things. But the same can be said for, 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 for big enterprise, both on the cost-saving side, uh, but then also on the revenue-generating side. I need to ask you a final question. I'm sorry, David. I know that we're running out of time here. <laughs> I, I want to ask you, because you touched on it, the capital efficiency of these companies. Do you see this impacting the VC models? Have you seen that, that the capital efficiency of these startups is actually so, so profound? that we're likely going to not necessarily for many of these see anything beyond a series A round, and then they'll actually be able to get to a point where they're either exitable or, or IPOable. I don't know the answer to that question yet because I haven't seen it. And I think it depends on what type of business you're building. So, um, uh, you know, there are a lot of tech-enabled businesses out there um, which, are, which are still being um, built um, and are perfectly good businesses. But they require a lot more R&D and CapEx and investment and, and capital raise to, uh, to achieve their goals than pure play software companies. The other point is um, the expenses and, I guess, cost of goods sold um, associated with becoming like an AI native company or, or product. So uh, the margins uh, can be lower as well with all the compute that, that you need to use um, and things like that. So I think... Um, still like TBD on, on how that looks. But when you think about the rest of the PNL, you can make a very strong case for, for, for cost being significantly lower in terms of, you know, operating expenses, size of engineering teams, et cetera, et cetera. So it should make people more efficient and more productive over time as the technology uh, matures. And, you know, that's really scary because, this is going to impact people's livelihoods and um, and people are nervous about that, especially people of my generation as well, um, you know, who are growing up with this technology. So going back to the regulation point and, um, and, and how governments can support, the education piece is going to be super, super important. 
and the reskilling of people is going to be super important, which um, I think falls and falls at government's responsibility, but then also um, company responsibility as well. So making sure that we can actually engage with this software in the in the right way. So you know, get reskilled and make sure you know we're not out of jobs. I think it's a it's a, it's an important thing to think about. And I think that's a great way to to kind of close this section uh, to everyone listening. And we had so many other topics that we would love to talk with Sam. And I'm sure Sam would love to to share his thoughts as well. If uh, you feel like we missed out on anything like AI geeky specific, feel free to drop us a line, email us. We'll, we'll happily invite Sam back again or, or do some special content just for that. I'm sure Sam will be happy to, to help if he can. Because now it is time for the shout out segment. Sam, I'd love to ask you to give a shout out to a co-investor, Angel, or just an LP for being awesome. And do share that story behind that awesomeness. Yeah, I'm going to shout out to Camille, at, um, who's a partner at Notion VC based here in London. So I've known him uh, my entire time in VC. So um, coming up to six years now, I think he's a, a great investor and pretty much every entrepreneur I've met likes him and thinks he's a, he's a great investor. Um, he's incredibly empathetic. Uh, he's also technical himself. He's a builder. Um, he's been an operator and um, he's incredibly generous with both his, uh, his network and his time to brainstorm on things. So that's my shout out. Keeping with the time, let's try and move quick through this one. The three biggest learnings in your life over the last 10 years. Tell us. I think one is just like always act, you know, ethically and responsibly and um, in a super transparent way. Yeah, always be honest, always be honest and transparent. So that's really something I've always found really important. Secondly is work with people you like. You spend more time, you know, with your colleagues than uh, with your family. So um, I think that's really important. Uh, and then the third thing is uh, always, always try to learn more and to grow more. And that's why venture is such a fun job because it's literally like being at university every day is like having a, uh, being in, an, um, you know, three to four lectures from people who know spaces and topics and domains better than you do, which, uh, which are entrepreneurs. So, so those are some thoughts. And on that note, let's go into the quick fire round where we'll ask you three quick answer questions. <laughs> and now the quick Sam, what advice would you give your 10-year younger self? Learn how to code. Be a machine <laughs> now, learning engineer. <laughs> I love it. Now, what are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe for fundraising? Yeah, so last year, um, uh, I was actually in New York with the head of uh, investor relations of one of the um, the largest uh, multi-stage VC funds in the US who was giving us some advice on, on, on the fundraise for our third fund. And he said something that uh, was very interesting and, and stuck with me. He said, fundraising success is an equation with the following inputs, track record, USP, and simplicity of story. And he said, if you can focus on, on getting the right balance between those three inputs, that will determine the success of your fundraise. And what's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you've been in venture? This is, a, this is always a tricky one because... I think the one I've learned, the thing I've learned is that um, 
Venture is all about the power law. So um, usually only a few of your investments drive the majority of your returns, but you end up spending probably the least amount of time with the companies that drive your returns. That's always been counterintuitive to me and something that I struggled with um, when thinking about, you know, using my time most effectively. Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Everyone listening in, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the European VC podcast. Do drop us a review, follow the pod, or go on eu.vc and bask in all the content that's there. Thank you. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This, this is a union of values. values. United and determined. We can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new new beginnings. Let's start acting.